even when we create spaces that are by us and for us, somehow it still gets colonized in real time. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is just learning how do you take up space and also how do you do it in a way where you're uplifting other communities that are also marginalized and face different types of oppression in their own way. Hi there, wanna hear? Welcome to Stories from the Field, a production from Firefly Inclusion Solutions. Each day, Jason and I are fortunate to meet and work with individuals that are driving culture and systems change across their communities, in their organizations, and across the globe. From diversity, equity, and inclusion experts to enthusiasts from all fields and disciplines, we're thrilled to bring you their insights and stories of transformation. Let's get started. We would like to welcome Jeanette Lamb, documentary filmmaker, to join our amazing podcast here. Jeanette, welcome. Happy to have you here. And we'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and especially how you came to find filmmaking as your creative outlet. And I'm not even going to say career. I'm gonna, it sounds like from everything I've read about you, your mission and passion. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm calling in from Albany, New York, which is the indigenous land of the Mohican and Haudenosaunee people. And right now I'm working as the creative producer and lead educator at YouthFX. We're a film organization based in the south end of Albany, designed to teach young people of color creative and technical storytelling skills. But how I got into filmmaking, I honestly feel like it was an accident. I always say I, I made my first documentary before I... I really understood what a documentary was. It was, long story short, it was the summer of my freshman year of college and I was teaching English in my motherland, Taiwan. And I hadn't been there since my childhood. So I hadn't seen my grandparents in a long time. And my grandfather had actually gotten really ill and he didn't remember who I was, which was a difficult experience because my mom is like one of seven siblings and she's the only one that's living in the U.S. So all of my family still lives in Taiwan and they're very close knit. So I've had this, you know, disconnect in some ways. But so I spent that summer after I was teaching the program, just following my grandpa around and filming him and trying to fill this void that I feel like I had in my childhood. And when I got back to the U.S., he actually ended up passing away. And so the video and the short video, short documentary that I had edited on like iMovie <laughs> ended up capturing our last moments together. And I feel like that was a really transformative moment for me and just helping me realize how powerful of a tool film can be and capturing these in-between moments and immortalizing them. So that's what led me here. <laughs> and then I studied film and journalism in college. And after college, I was accepted into this fellowship called Nextoc, which is a international fellowship for young filmmakers of color working to decolonize the documentary industry. And through there is how I got connected with YouthFX. And here we are now. That's incredible on so many levels. First of all, shout out to your land acknowledgement at the beginning of your intro. It's something that we at Firefly do before all of our presentations and facilitations. In Chicago, we are, this is the land of the Potawatomi Nation. And I know Felicia can share hers, but I think that's so profound. And if for people to just start regularly doing that would just be really epic as far as I'm concerned. That you know a lot about a person and when that's how they, they intro themselves, right, with that type of acknowledgement. So thank you for sharing that. 
That was cool. I'm in uh, Queens, New York, right by JFK Airport and the land of the Lakawe people. So it was great for you to segue into that. So I have a quick question for you. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions while I can get in there. <laughs> but you really managed to amass like an interesting body of work. And what I think our listeners at Firefly would really be interested in learning more about would be your film, A Flower in a Dark Place. And that's where you recorded incarcerated youth. We'd love to know mm-hmm. what was the inspiration behind mm-hmm. that project. This is only such a long story, but I'm going to try to condense it for you guys. So it began my freshman year of college. I was a part of this program called Storytelling and Social Change, where freshmen from the university, I went to school in Richmond, Virginia. I went to University of Richmond. So freshmen from the school would partner with Bonaire Juvenile Correctional Facility. Essentially, young people who are incarcerated and students in this program would share life stories as a means of better understanding themselves, each other, their commonalities. And at the end, we would create like little zines, like little books about our, our stories. And it was a really cool program. But I feel like what really struck me about it is that these types of short-term peer-to-peer programs are designed to be extractive, even if that's not what they front themselves as, you know, like they, they want us to do this program and connect and share all these life stories. And then you leave and it's, you never talk again. And they actually had a policy that said, once you leave, you're not allowed to keep contact for privacy reasons, whatever that means. Long story short, throughout college, I like stayed involved with juvenile justice work. It was just something that really struck me. My partner and I freshman year really connected. Our hometowns were only 30 minutes apart and we were living these vastly different realities. And a lot of that had to do with race, class, all these things, access to resources. And I just feel like it really wasn't fair. And in Virginia, the reincarceration rate is 70% of youth will be reincarcerated after three years of their release, which is just staggering and insane. And so three years after the program, I was still thinking about it, still thinking about its impact on me. And so I wanted to go back to create a film about it. And at first it was just gonna be a film about the program that kind of documented the relationship arcs that would happen through it that would be difficult to explain to people if they weren't a part of it. But there were two young men who were a part of the program and there weren't enough students to pair up with them equally. And so my mentor had asked me if I wanted to step in and I was like, yeah, like, but I'm making a film, but yeah, sure, I'll step in for a week. And long story short, week after week, I started connecting with them more and just came to a place where I realized, like, my relationship and friendship with them is much more important than a vision of whatever project I wanted to make. That was, like, the moment where it shifted and it became really more of a collaborative project of, like, I have access to this equipment and I want to create something for us, if even just for us to remember each other, since we're not allowed to talk after this. And with the help, their names are Ken and Khalil. They were my partners. With the help of them and also three other partner pairs, we decided, like, what is the goal of us wanting to make something? And it was really for people, really to bring people into that experience with us and just, like, help them or allow them to experience what we would experience on those Thursday nights. And so we decided to just record our last one hour conversation. And then the visuals were based off of a poem that one of the partner pairs wrote and one of the young men described himself as a flower in a dark place. Mm -hmm. And after I heard that, I couldn't unhear it. And there are several different versions of the film because the conversation was an hour. So I cut down four hours of conversations to like 20 minutes. And there are a lot of different versions that could have been very like political or like talking about the system and all these different things. But I think I wanted 
it to be a collaboration and like going based off the poem that they wrote. It really was about inviting people to see young people who are incarcerated in a different light. And I feel like a lot of the times when you hear about juvenile justice or like anything having to do with the system, people automatically have terrible stereotypes and things that they think about. And so I feel like this project was really an effort just to honor them, allowing me to come into their lives and also to capture how much fun we would have together. And in the audio, I feel like you hear us laughing and like dreaming and reflecting and all these things together that you would do normally when you're just hanging out with your friend. And so that's kind of how that project came about. And it's actually flourished in really amazing ways. So after I graduated from college, I was like, I'm not going to listen to these rules anymore because I'm technically not a student anymore. So like I can connect with the young men that I was in relationship with or like friends, friends with. And so I started exchanging letters with Kay and Khalil. And then a year after I had the opportunity to go back to speak, there, there was a new iteration of the program and I had opportunity to go back, show them the film and kind of speak to the class. And in that time, in those nine months that had passed, I had screened the film in a lot of different places. And like every time I just wish so badly that Kate and Khalil were there to see the way that they were like impacting people. And like people really felt like they had a relationship to them after watching that film or knew someone like them or saw themselves in them. And so I ended up creating this little book that was letters written directly to them from people around the world who had watched the film. And when I went back, I gave it to them just as a present for them to see like how far their stories have reached. But then the crazy thing is a week after that, Khalil had a court hearing and he was up against a pretty intense sentence. He was aging out of juvenile prison and moving into adult prison. And the sentence was just completely unfair. Long story short, his lawyer contacted me and asked if I would serve as a character witness for him because of the relationship we had with the film. And I was like, yeah, could I also submit these letters that I have been collecting from people all over the world? And they let me do it. And the judge, he was like this 80-year-old white man in Richmond, Virginia, the Confederate capital. But he read the letters. He actually left the room to read them all. And when he came back, he read one of the letters out loud. And he was just like completely, you could see something switch in him in that moment. And I don't want to share the details of this case, but it ended up being really positive and way better than we expected. And then a year after, not a year after that, like six months after that, Kane also had a court hearing and we were able to do the same thing. And I was actually able to testify for him and he ended up getting released that day. And so the film has really taken its own life in this really beautiful way that's just like way beyond the film. I feel like it's, I don't know. I think it really has been a tool that has shown me how powerful stories are. And like, even in the most cruel systems that are deliberately designed to dehumanize people, I feel like people being vulnerable and sharing their truth really humanizes them. And I, I want to give all credit to Ken and Khalil because I feel like it's not like me that did anything. If anything, it's them being honest and vulnerable enough to share with me that I feel like was able to come full circle and help them out. So yeah, it's that's that's been like the most beautiful, I don't even want to call it a project, but you know what I mean. That's incredible. Uh, go ahead, Felicia. I, I was going to say that I just think it's obvious how working on the project, how it impacted their lives. What, how has it affected you? How has it changed you? I feel like I don't even know how to answer that question. I feel like it's changed me in so many ways. And I think 
it's taught me or reminded me, I don't know what the right terminology here is, but I think it's really instilled in me that I'm a storyteller or a relationship person before I am a filmmaker. And I feel like it's reminded me I came into this because I care about people and I care about people's stories. And that will always be more important to me than, I don't know, like the technical side of things or the industry things or all those things. Yeah. And I could say so much, but that's like my simple answer. (laughs) It's amazing. And I love, I had a chance to just look at up and learn a little bit more about the Next Doc Film Collective. And I think it's such a powerful thing because it's, from what I read about, it's creating this next generation of BIPOC documentarians. And I think that's such an important thing from the concept of there are so many stories, right, from our various communities that either A, have never been told, or B, have been told by people who the stories don't belong to, that don't oftentimes show us in the best light. And it's such a critical medium for us, I think, moving forward, especially for the next generation to be able to like learn about all the stories. We have to have these stories coming out of our own community. That's incredible. Yeah, Yeah, I think just echoing what you just said, Jason, and also circling back to your question, Felicia, I feel like that's a huge thing that working with Kane and Chloe or collaborating with them has taught me is that when you put the power in the hands of the people who are closest to or most proximate to whatever the story is about, like that's how stories should be done. Or like, yeah, I could go on a whole tangent about this, but I recently had a conversation with one of my friends who's actually a part of Next Stop. It was about impact producing and talking about who should make what films. And one of the things they said that really stood out to me was about something that's really important when you're going into making a film is thinking about if you can recognize the potential harms of making that film. Because filmmaking is supposed to be a healing process for both the filmmaker and the people involved. But unfortunately, historically, it hasn't been that way, especially in documentary, which comes from predominantly wealthy white men going into, like you said, BIPOC communities and extracting and benefiting from these stories. But I think there's what Nextalk is trying to do and a lot of other people in the industry now are trying to shift that culture and like you said, restoring power to people to tell stories about their own communities. Yeah. That's incredible. And I, and I love, I remember that when I first saw that title, A Flower in a Dark Place, it, it, it had echoes of Tupac's a rose that grew from concrete, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, oh, I I know exactly where this is coming from. It's love. Mm -hmm. Something that's been, has gotten more coverage as of late as this year unfolds and we deal with all these different challenges that are emerging from various hate groups and anti-Asian hate has been, or has been really at the forefront, I think for the last few months. And not that it's Mm -hmm. new, not that it's just now happening, but it's, it's starting to be a part of a a conversation. And and I know you were actually had the opportunity or you availed yourself to participate in a rally in in Albany, where you bravely shared some of your earliest experiences as an Asian American queer woman in a world where you felt immense pressure to assimilate, right? So what are some of the challenges that are top of mind for you and not just as a BIPOC filmmaker but also as a human being existing in a dominant culture yeah that's a great question yeah that rally was a really intense experience I think it was following the shooting in Atlanta 
it was like three days after it, I think. So it was like planned very rapidly. And I feel like oftentimes that's how it happens. Like the communities that are grieving are also the ones that are organizing. I'm not sure if you guys saw the video, but basically what happened is I was supposed to be speak in the beginning of the rally along with five other Asian women. An organizer had asked us to come talk about our experiences. And right before I was supposed to speak, this like white congressman came up to me and said, oh, there's a lot of Congress people here today that really took time out of their busy schedule. So we're going to let them go first, but you'll get to speak. And I was just like, okay, word. And he told me it was like two people. It was like a line of 20 people and they just said absolutely nothing. They were chanting empty chants. And it was just like really infuriating to stand like two feet from them and like literally watch this happen in real time. And so I think that rally is super representative of how I would answer your question is just even when we create spaces that are by us and for us, somehow it still gets colonized in real time. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is just learning how do you take up space and also how do you do it in a way where you're uplifting other communities that are also marginalized and face different types of oppression in their own way. I actually, this reminds me of a quote. I don't know if you guys have heard of Ocean Vuong. He's a really amazing Vietnamese writer and poet. And he's someone that like really inspired me the past few years. And he has this quote that I saved in my phone and it says, being queer saved my life. Often we see queerness as deprivation. But when I look at my life, I saw that queerness demanded an, an alternative innovation from me. I had to make alternative routes I had, it made me curious. It made me ask, is this enough for me? And I feel like that is something that has like really stuck with me. I feel like when you have more intersectional identities that are marginalized in different ways, you can almost plug all of that into this quote and it makes you ask, is this enough for me? Is the way things are right now and the status quo and the way we still live under these intense white supremacist structures, supremacist structures, is that enough for me or do I want something more? I think the biggest challenge is, is just you owning yourself and coming to a place of comfort and confidence where you can realize you don't have to shrink or assimilate yourself to fit in all these spaces. And if anything, maybe you don't even want to fit in those spaces and you need to create your own spaces. And I feel like that's what being a part of Next Doc and YouthFX has really taught me. No, that, thank you so much for sharing. It's, it's so important because... I put this in, in on equal footing with people trying to break into even the tech space. Like it's so important on so many levels and there's so many barriers and challenges that are thrown up at every corner from access to social capital, to financial capital, mm-hmm. to not having your work taken from you and repurposed once, right. you know, the wrong people get involved. Like there's so many different challenges in that space. But again, it's work that we have to continue to do and support people that are in those communities that are doing that, that heavy lifting. I'd love to ask a question based on what you just said, Jason. So a little bit earlier, you said that it's the communities that are grieving that are usually organizing. And then they brought another word to my mind. It is exhausting. When you talk about the work that that we do and you talk about decolonizing spaces as well, what do you do to keep yourself inspired and motivated? And is there a particular project right now that excites you, that gives you that energy that you need to keep going? I think honestly, what inspires me or keeps me going is being in community with people who I know want to move to the same places that I'm trying to move to. And I think this isn't necessarily a project. So I'm an educator at YouthFX and currently I've designed and I'm teaching this five-month fellowship called the Youth Voices Storytelling Fellowship. 
And it's a virtual program. We've been doing it since March and it's for five young people of color who are from the DMV area. So DC, Maryland, Virginia, um, where I grew up in Virginia. And the whole fellowship is centered around community building while also exploring what role self-reflective storytelling can play in reframing or redefining personal narratives or communal narratives. And so a lot of the um, young people that I'm working with are first time filmmakers, but I think something huge that they've like affirmed for me is that just because you're a first time filmmaker doesn't mean you're a first time storyteller. And especially being from communities of color where a lot of our coming to the U.S. was sometimes not by choice, either through enslavement or displacement by war. Like my dad's side of the family were refugees, part of the Vietnam War. All these different things that have happened to communities of color in the U.S., a lot of times stories get stripped from you without your consent or without your wanting. And I feel like a lot of the work that communities of color have done in the industry of storytelling has been about preserving our stories or bringing them even to the forefront. But I think something that I'm trying to work on now is I feel like I used to like, I don't know, this is something I'm still grappling with. It's like sometimes, for example, recently I watched this short doc by a filmmaker, Carol Nguyen, and it was about her family's refugee story from Vietnam. It was very similar to mine. And it was really emotional and really heartbreaking. And at the end, I realized it was really beautiful, but it was just this huge depiction of trauma. And I feel like a lot of times when you don't see yourself in the mainstream, one way to humanize yourself is for people to understand the things you've been through that humanize you. But a lot of the times that type approach is for the white gaze because you want white people to know what you've been through and then validate you subconsciously somehow. And so I feel like I'm trying to move into a space of radical imagination, which is something that we talk about a lot at UFX and Next Doc is where do you see yourself? Where do you see your community? And how do you get to that vision? And so that's something I'm really excited right now about the fellowship is that's something we're trying to practice in the fellowship. And all the young people are making 10 minute short films about their visions for themselves and their communities. And they are all like so talented and so cool. And there's everything on the spectrum from talking about mental health or community help community care spaces or unpacking like what the American dream actually means and who it's for. And I don't know, I think that just the level that they're thinking at their high schoolers is just so awesome. And I think they keep me motivated and excited and remind me like why this work is so important. Because hopefully down the line, we won't need to be having conversations like this. It'll just be the norm. And land acknowledgements will just be the norm. And all these things will just be the norm. It's going to take all of us putting in the work that we're doing and, and then yeah, start to be able real. to get there. But again, I, I think to your point, it's through the action of, of doing and, and showing as an example, we can give people permission to do the same, right? Even as powerful as you coming on and sharing a land acknowledgement and reminding us who are accustomed to doing it. I love that as a part of an introduction to who you are and where you currently are. And I love this concept of radical imagination. That is, that's really powerful that, that it resonates with the rebel inside me. Like truly mm-hmm. it's what we need more of. We've asked, we've asked a lot of you to of sharing yourself today on this podcast. And when we conclude, we'd like to ask if there's a, a question or a request that you have for 
inclusion champions like ourselves or practitioners or the, the greater community as a whole, this is your opportunity to, to make that ask. <laughs> I love it. I think something that I've been thinking a lot about is this question that we've like talked a lot about in Next Talk and Youth FX is what is your desired future? And I think along with that, what will it take to get there? Who do you need beside you to get there? Just what does that look like? And I feel like it can look like different things at different times of your life. And I feel like the first time I heard that question a few years ago, it was when I was going through a lot of personal things with my like queerness. And I was asked that question in a filmmaking space. So I think it was like designed to be answered and what's your desired future like for the filmmaking industry or whatever. But I feel like I couldn't stop thinking about my desired future right now is just for me to come out and own it. And shortly after that, I did come out and it's been a while now and I'm further along my journey, a lot more confident. And I feel like coming closer to myself has allowed me to be a better filmmaker, a better educator. It's allowed me to share more of myself in all the spaces that I show up in. And in turn, I feel like it allows other people to show up more too. And I don't know, I think that's a cool question to gauge at different times in your life, like where you are and what do you need to get closer to yourself about so that you can get closer to the communities that you're like working with? Yeah, that's my question for you, Jason and Felicia. What is your desire future? My desire, it really is to one day be unemployed because there's no need for people who do what I do. Because like you said, it's the norm and it's taught at home and it's part of how you're taught in school. So there's no need for someone called the diversity consultant. That really is my my dream. And I think one of the ways that I really believe it can happen is, again, going back to what you said about the white gaze. I think that we have to build our communities outside of it. I think we've spent so much time saying, look over here, look at me, look over here. And they're valid and I have value if you look. And I think we need to recognize our own stories and build our communities and build businesses and do what we all know that we can do. And I think as we do that, I think some of the things that we're asking for, we won't have to ask for, they'll come to us. And so really what I want to do is help people, help us really build strong communities of color that are willing to be interdependent, but can be completely self-reliant as needed. That, that really is what my vision is, because as long as I have to get your permission to have it, then I don't really have my power. And so mm. moving us to spaces where we're not asking for permission to be who we are. Wow. I love that. Oh my gosh. I should have gone first. No, I I love it all. And it's a great question to continue to reflect on. The way I'll answer it is this, something that I've been, that's been bouncing around in my head is I've been listening to a lot of old interviews from Baldwin and hearing him talk about being terrified of the moral apathy, right? The death of the heart, which is happening in, in this country. And he talks about the people with this kind of hate in their heart do not transform. It literally means that like the figurative or literal kind of collapse of our country and our future. And my vision is that we're able to support enough people on their growth journey that we reach a tipping point where it doesn't have to be everybody because I don't I don't pretend to live in a fantasy world where everybody will be doing land acknowledgements, but we don't need everybody. We just need enough. We just need to reach that tipping point where we can really start to push our society and honestly, our civilization in a completely different direction. 
because my mind tells me that there are some incredible challenges ahead for humanity in the next coming decades. And if we can't get past the stuff that we're still working on after 400, 500, 600 plus years, we're going to be in trouble, right? So like my vision, and it seems dark, but my vision is about continuing to do this work and being excited about doing this both professionally and in my personal life as well to help enough people make this transformation and unpack and heal whatever needs to be unpacked and healed so they can stop dehumanizing their fellow human beings and to start recognizing the potential, the collective potential, if we can allow everybody to show up as their true authentic self, like the power that comes from that to your point, which you mentioned earlier about how much more of yourself is coming into your work and how more empowered you feel now that you can be more honest and out about who you are. You take that and you multiply it over hundreds of millions of people, all of a sudden being able to show up as their most authentic self. And my goodness, I am excited about the potential if we can get more and more people to do that. If we can create societies, organizations, and systems that allow more and more people to do that. So that, that's my vision. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Can I ask you guys one more question just out of my own curiosity? Sure. <laughs> I'm like interviewing you. But no, I feel like this is something I've really been deeply thinking about the past year. And I even mentioned it in the speech that I gave at the rally is I like really believe that our solidarity is our weapon and that white supremacy's biggest fear is the collectivization of people of color. And even though I believe that strongly, I feel like I'm still thinking and reading and in conversation with people a lot about how do we get there? Like, how do we build cross-community solidarity in a way that doesn't flatten us and honors the fact that everybody has a different experience, just goes through different things, but how do we build solidarity around the fact that we all understand what it's like to operate under the system of like white supremacy. And I don't know, I think just speaking from for myself, from like perspective of an Asian American woman, I think this is something that I've been really grappling with and trying to think about the past year. And in some ways for my own community, I think there needs to be two things that happen and not necessary to say that they're the only two things, but I think in some ways there needs to be a reckoning, especially East Asians have this proximity to whiteness, either because of colorism, because you're lighter skin, because you kind of like our immigrant parents have bought into this system where like, Oh, the closer you get to this job, the closer you get to making this amount of money, when really what they're saying is the closer you get to whiteness, you'll be more accepted. Maybe they don't see it that way. So I think there needs to be a reckoning about people saying it's not just about ending white supremacy. It's also about ending anti-blackness. And those two things are very intertwined, but people don't name it that way because I think sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. So I think that's the first thing that needs to happen. And then I also think there needs to be a big education on radical traditions of solidarity that have just been erased from our history. I didn't even learn about Yuri Kochiyama, Grace Lee Boggs, Frederick Douglass. I didn't learn about any of these things until my early 20s. And it sucks. And I feel like if we had more education on these things and on the relationships that 
these Asian women had with Black Freedom Fighters, it would be really inspiring to people in my generation to feel like we have more footing to find our way forward. And we're not just, these things aren't new. They're rooted. It's why we need more storytellers like like you out there, because it's intentional, at least in my personal opinion. It, it, the, the lack of those stories and those truths being told is with intention. And Felicia, you can talk a little bit more about this th- than I can, but it's it's... Also why we intentionally teach the history of white supremacy culture as a part of our transformation work that we do. And it's one of the more sobering moments for 50 tech managers to be on a call, to be confronted with that. But it's also a really powerful moment. And even the way that we facilitate it is such that you get to see it across the entire globe, across the entire span of history, right? So it speaks to this. So if you're, whoever you are, whatever identity you are on that call, you are, or in our trainings, you are learning about some things that most people have not ever heard about as far as history and the connective tissue that that links it across all the different members of the BIPOC communities. So we're right there with you of that needing that part of it, that part of education needing to be brought to the table more often. And then I'll shut up and let, let Felicia share. I think you both have given the answer. I do believe it is education about our own histories and each other's histories, because I think we don't know enough. And we can sometimes, and it's human nature, I think, to tend to think you're the one, you're the only one who's struggling, having a hard time, et cetera. And we really need to understand that all of us have been through it. And I do believe we need to understand how historically we did work together collectively, but the idea of the model minority was created and it was created for exactly what's happened, which is more division. And I think we just all really need to understand, we need to stop and wake up and realize that we're fighting each other for crumbs that, that have fallen off the table. We're not fighting for a seat at the table. We've been fighting for crumbs that have fallen to the floor to see who can get the crumbs. And we don't want the crumbs. We want a seat at the table. And when we realize that, I think that we will be able to work together more collectively. And I really do believe we can't let the conversation be, is it going to be Black Lives Matter or stop Asian hate? No, this is not an either or. This is a both and conversation. And we have to, as communities, insist on the both and conversation. And when we do that, I think that's what's going to move us to that space where collectively we have more of a voice and we have more influence and we have more power. But again, we have to stop fighting for crumbs. Wow. Thank you guys both so much. This has been so awesome. I feel like I've learned so much from both of you too. And I feel like it's this, just having conversations with people and building relationships and community and not just, I don't know, swiping on Instagram. I feel that's what a lot of it has reverted to. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. It's all about the dialogue and which is why we consider it an honor and a privilege to be able to use whatever platform that we have to be able to bring voices like yours to more and more people in this effort of solidarity and collaboration. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope what you heard today resonated with you. Please go to the show notes and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter to share your own stories from the field. There you also find information about us and how we're leveraging inclusion to transform systems, culture, and individuals. Also, feel free to drop us a line and tell us about your journey. We can't wait to meet you.